0: Hello, and welcome to the Humanities Pod. I'm Paul Fleming, and today we're discussing misogyny, male privilege, and how a male sense of entitlement to consent, to admiration, to sex, to domestic labor, to knowledge, and to power continues to hurt the well-being, career, and very lives of women. Leading us through the systemic issue with such deep roots is Kate Mann, associate professor of philosophy at Cornell University, and the author of two foundational books on the topic. Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, 2018, and entitled How Male Privilege Hurts Women, 2020. These studies have rightfully earned Kate's reputation as the philosopher of Me Too.
1: When you're trying to raise a girl in such an unjust world, how do you how do you navigate that? And part of my answer has been: well, you fight. You get prepared to fight with your teeth and nails and claw your way out of situations that feel deeply unjust.
0: Welcome to the pod, Kate.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Great to have you, Kate. So I'd like to begin by defining misogyny. Sexism and misogyny are often thought as synonymous the same thing. You make a crucial distinction between the two terms, between sexism and misogyny, and insist on misogyny being the operative term for best describing the societal structure underpinning patriarchy. Can you explain the difference between sexism and misogyny, why you prefer the latter, and how exactly, as you describe it, misogyny acts as, quote, as the law enforcement branch of patriarchy?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Metaphorically speaking, I see misogyny as this law enforcement branch of patriarchy, and to break that down a little bit, I see it as policing and enforcing a patriarchal order by visiting women with hostility and hatred paradigmatically in as much as they don't conform to patriarchal norms and expectations. So misogyny is a system that polices and punishes women who don't toe the line when it comes to those patriarchal values. I think of sexism as complementary to misogyny and as working hand-in-hand with it. Mm -hmm. I think of sexism as an ideology, a set of beliefs and theories and cultural narratives that essentially say that women are particularly well-suited to serve the roles that they're supposed to serve under patriarchy, and that men are particularly well-suited to serve in masculine-coded positions of power and authority. So, I see, in a way, misogyny as the active wing of patriarchy, that which makes the world conform to patriarchal values, and sexism as the bad theory behind all of this. Mm -hmm. In a slogan, uh, sexism wears a lab coat and misogyny goes on witch hunts. (laughs) So I wouldn't say I prefer one term to the other so much as I see misogyny as as relatively under-theorized.
0: Oh, thank you. That's really helpful. That's really helpful. It's particularly the notion of sexism being the belief or the ideology branch mm-hmm. and misogyny as the police or enforcement. I think that's really, really helpful because we see, we see the effects of misogyny every day. It's in the workplace. It's an average pay. It's in the domestic sphere. Mm-hmm. It's on the political stage. I mean, there's basically there's not a corner of life that's not infected by misogyny. And you marshal in your book just an overwhelming amount of qualitative and quantitative evidence to this end. But what strikes me most and what I think is really different about your intervention is that you approach it as a philosopher. And you insist on the need to grasp not just the dire numbers, just how terrible this is, but the moral universe built around male privilege and its justification and foundation. This, to me at least, seems to be the deeper, the more subtle, and perhaps the intractable issue behind misogyny and there was the entire edifice of ideas that form a system um or life world you could call it that we take for granted Mm -hmm. so what i'd like to know is you know could you kind of walk us through how you approach misogyny as a moral philosopher and why philosophy the humanities matter particularly for seemingly intractable issues such as misogyny racism homophobia transphobia and i was the role of philosophy Mm -hmm. in these areas
1: yeah i mean I come at this from a distinctive perspective and one that I mm-hmm. think is is limited and has a limited value, but I hope is one useful perspective among many. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the perspective of someone who's trained in moral philosophy. And I've been particularly struck when examining misogyny, how moralistic a notion um, it tends to be, how people who are purveyors of misogynist ideology, um, people who are just all-out misogynists, tend to think women are doing wrong in the world. Mm -hmm. And they tend to justify their punitive and moralistic actions by holding that women have somehow offended against genuine moral norms. And that particular women, so it's never leveled against women in general, but the allegation is usually that particular women are being insufficiently caring or attentive, or that they're somehow duplicitous, treacherous, committing perfidies. And so we see... All of the ways in which morality can be weaponized to oppress people. And of course, this isn't a new point, but I think it's particularly pernicious and sometimes overlooked when it comes to gender. The fact that we have this false morality system that can make people and depict people and also make them feel like wrongdoers, even when a woman has done something she's perfectly entitled to do. So this depiction of women as essentially um, of certain women, certain women who don't conform to patriarchal norms and expectations as villains or as monsters or just as ordinary wrongdoers in ways that guilt and shame and punish. That's what I think the perspective of moral philosophy is particularly useful for illuminating this false moral system that exists in parallel with the real one and that we need in the name of morality to deconstruct.
0: I really appreciate that viewpoint of how philosophy, both its possibilities and limitations, because one of the things I was thinking about in preparing for this is that change often doesn't come from better information, and you record this quite exhaustively in the book. And on the one hand, it seems to show how much we still cling to the Enlightenment notion that if people only knew the facts, that they would oh. behave differently. <laughs> but the <laughs> fact, the fact is, that as you show, you know, you confront people with gaslighting, you confront people with mansplaining. If you kind of fulfill that inf- information deficit, what we often see is not a change of behavior. But doubling down.
1: Absolutely.
0: I mean, we see worse behavior. And this you see with climate change in particular, where you think like if people just knew the facts, they would do things differently. And no. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about the limits of philosophy or enlightenment or rationality and how we, sticking to your work, can confront misogyny within those limitations.
1: Yeah, no, I love that question because I'm incredibly pessimistic about the power of information, of reason, of the... I mean, I'm incredibly pessimistic about... Sorry to interrupt, but that
0: you say as a philosopher, but go on.
1: Well, in a way, I was attracted to philosophy out of this deep suspicion. And, you know, one of the things that attracted me to philosophy as a sort of literary matter Mm -hmm. was when... Philosophers talked about reasons and reason yeah. with this sense of friction in the air, yeah. as if something then had been done. I thought, how ridiculous, <laughs> <Yeah>. how absurd. <laughs> and so I was I almost wanted to understand that conversation from the inside because from the outside it looked so silly. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm someone who has a training in logic. I believe in the the power of, of reason in a certain sense, but not to persuade people. I believe in it to arm people. I believe in it to arm people who are struggling under conditions of oppression and persecution even yeah. to empower people who didn't previously feel intellectually empowered or even able to name the conditions they were struggling against. Um, and I really like at a personal level identify as someone who at a certain period in my life um, really struggled with misogynistic forces that I could not name. And so I'm writing for people Mm -hmm. who are really in need of a way to name the problems they face and who would otherwise easily be gaslit out of reasoning that I think is sound and is important and does make sense. But we can so easily be overpowered by um, pseudo authorities who have the weight of white supremacist heteropatriarchy on their side. So I I believe in doing all the reasoning. It's just with a view to which audience and i'm especially interested in all of my work in empowering girls and women to name precisely what is going on that might be deeply unjust deeply pernicious deeply harmful and that they might have felt uh, guilty or ashamed for naming yeah. prior to that. So I'm not trying to persuade misogynists.
0: That's really helpful and I think that just proves your your <laughs> your, your your status <laughs> as a philosopher because that makes things a lot clearer to me oh, good. that actually the reason is not for persuading the perpetrator, which Mm-mm. is what we, at least I often think, but it's actually for the victims of it. Yeah. It's to give the victims a tool yes, exactly. in fighting it and empowering them and being able to explain it and then be given a name to it. I think that's really crucial that distinction.
1: And then maybe escape it without the guilt because so much of what keeps girls and women in abusive situations and structures and practices is the belief that somehow you deserve it or this isn't systemic. It's rather somehow you've erred. It's personal. It's particular to you. And I mean, of course, this isn't everyone. But again, I come at this as someone who easily was led through no real um you know particular authority but just general cultural logics to believe that certain things i faced were somehow my fault and also were piecemeal and weren't systemic and didn't make a kind of holistic sense that i think in retrospect i would love to be able to speak to especially girls in that position and say no, this actually coheres. There's something cohesive here and it's harmful. And of course you don't deserve that. So that's how I think about my audience and how I think about the role more generally of philosophers. Often we won't persuade, but we can crystallize for people who are fighting to hang on to inchoate beliefs in a way that I think we all sometimes struggle to hang on to this inchoate sense that no, something isn't right Mm -hmm. or something is important or valuable. But we sometimes or at least I have needed writing from a variety of disciplines to help me put those inchoate hunches and worries and implicit beliefs together.
0: That's excellent. So that's yeah.
1: that's the effort I kind of see myself as, as a small contributor to that collective effort yeah. to, yeah, in a way, it's a, a consciousness-raising project.
0: I'd like to get to that distinction between kind of what we could call the personal or the agent and the systemic side. And I'd like to refer to the term that you've coined, or perhaps your husband coined, I'm not sure the real story behind (laughs) it, but empathy. And I think empathy, you know, the more I thought about it, you've coined this to describe the disproportional sympathy expressed towards male perpetrators. So as to, you know, this fear of, I don't want to destroy his career or he has such a bright future in front of him. We can't do that to them. And we do this all while ignoring the victims, and these are the women and their careers and their reputations and their lives, and that's just cast by the wayside. You know, we see this with Brett Kavanaugh, we see this with Brock Turner, and countless other cases. But what I find fascinating about empathy, and this is where I think it crystallizes male privilege in a nutshell, um, is kind of fulcrum for your whole study, is that unlike gaslighting, unlike mansplaining, which are performed by the perpetrator. These are the bad guys, and you can point out the bad guys that are out there. Empathy is more complex, I would Mm -hmm. say, because it's an entire set of social relations. It's not just about bad agency. It's social relations in which other members of society reinforce the entire value system of misogyny by conferring on the perpetrator his right,
1: Mm -hmm. his
0: entitlement to a man's place in patriarchy. In other words, empathy is a social virtue in the perverse sense, not individual confirmation of male privilege. So I wonder if you could use empathy to reflect on the social, cultural dimension to misogyny, Mm -hmm. not as the bad actor, not as the bad agent, the bad apple, that's the mansplainer, that's the gaslighter, but rather turning this positive social value into a perversion that justifies male privilege.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So first, I'll tell you the story of how the the concept came to be. So I I was um, working, and this must have been back in, I think, 2014, maybe 2015, on this idea that misogyny punishes and often resents women who don't conform to patriarchal norms and expectations. Mm -hmm. And a question that immediately arose from that is, well, what... Else would we expect out of a system that's misogynistic? Mm-hmm. Because systems of punishment and reward and forgiveness and resentment, they almost invariably work holistically. Mm-hmm. So you'd expect, as a sort of matter of cultural logic, if you have a punitive system, there's probably something that's exonerating. In the background, yeah. And similarly, if you have a system that is resentful, well, where's the forgiveness? Yeah. So what the sheer concept of misogyny suggested was that to the extent to which society is misogynistic, we would expect, on the flip side, just as women are punished and resented, we would expect men to be rewarded, exonerated, and forgiven for misogynistic actions. And so I began to just look for that, mm-hmm. and turned out that once you start looking for that it does appear to be quite common i mean it's hard to measure its prevalence and that's a matter for social scientists but i thought the invention of this concept was useful yeah. because it allowed us to look for a phenomenon that actually fit together with misogyny and allows it to proliferate. Yeah. Anyway, the, the story behind the coinage of the term was that I was stuck on mempathy, it was like <laughs> mempathy androphilia, yeah, you know, yeah. I was sort of on the couch tossing around terms yeah. and I was like, Daniel, I asked my husband, like, yeah. can you come up with something catchier? And he was like, himpathy, boom there you go. And <laughs> and that just stuck. It, you know, it, It's cutesy, which I like because it's a very repeatable phrase and it allows yeah. people, to, again, victims of these mechanisms to call out empathy in a way that I hope is catchy yeah. and kind of in some ways annoyingly cutesy, but also allows you to roll your eyes at this prevalent phenomenon where A man does something misogynistic, something like sexual assault, sexual harassment, even misogynistic murder of a domestic partner or intimate partner, and yet the reactions are so often on his side, so often are sympathetic to him and worry about him over his female victims and either victim blame or erase her from the narrative in ways that make no moral sense, but for the fact that sympathy is generally a moral virtue. And so it's perversion can go almost unnoticed. And this is, I think, especially true for some women. We're taught, we're socialized to be very sympathetic. And I think I'm no exception to this. The idea of withholding sympathy is morally counterintuitive. And so it comes very naturally via this distorting cultural logic that you can feel sympathetic towards precisely the wrong people, because you deploy this generally virtuous disposition to feel bad for people and sorry for people in service of effectively the dominant people in society. Exactly. The white, privileged, non-disabled, cis, heterosexual men who commit these horrible actions, and yet are often forgiven and exonerated and subject to all this endless moral concern, despite the fact that they've done all this damage to people who deserve to be our primary locus of sympathy and concern.
0: Now, because that, that brings up an interesting point that you emphasized in the book, the book entitled In the Politics Section, where you talk about how misogyny as a system how it runs so deep that it jumps the gender gap. Mm. Particularly, empathy is shared by women. And you see this particularly Mm -hmm. on the campaign trail when it comes to entrusting women with the highest offices, particularly the presidency. I mean, we saw this with Hillary Clinton. We saw it particularly strong with Elizabeth Warren, how she went from leading the race in October to one month later, basically being over, to Amy Klobuchar and many others. So, I, I mean, I'm interested in the way that some of these structures of misogyny go beyond Mm -hmm. male behavior and are shared because an entire society is shared by women as well. And I'd like to ask you, I know you don't move towards psychological arguments in the book as a philosopher, but I wonder how, as a philosopher, how you explain this internalization of misogyny, of empathy in women themselves, Mm. because that's how deep it runs, that it's it's pervaded the entire society.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's an excellent question because I think, What study after study shows when it comes to things like our feeling that men are more entitled than female counterparts to wield power, study after study shows that women share these biases just as much as men. And often these studies don't shed light on non-binary people, but it would be surprising if non-binary people, for that matter, were immune to these biases. We kind of all have internalized them, which makes sense because I think about this often as a white woman embedded in both racist white supremacist as well as patriarchal social structures the incentive structures are really there to grant white male power and to in Mm -hmm. effect play nice with respect to people who not only have power over you or control over you but perhaps more importantly are granted a degree of moral authority that means it would often feel like a betrayal to defect from your implicit social role as someone who grants white men a certain amount of deference, a certain amount of authority. And so I think in some ways it's not so mysterious why white women end up supporting even someone like Donald Trump, partly because they feel they owe deference to him as a white man, but equally importantly because white men were the first to turn to Trump in large numbers and we know white women are the most homogenous group in terms of their dating and marital preferences, 90% of white women in heterosexual marriages are married to white men, which is incredibly homogenous. Mm -hmm. And so white women voting in the same way that their husbands do is not a terribly flattering thing to say. You know, I know we're meant to talk about women's agency, mm-hmm. but the truth is agency, schm agency, agency is deployed <laughs> yeah. in service of bad values yeah, yeah, all the time. Yeah. And that's just a fact of life that any moral philosopher is familiar yeah. with. Women often choose using their agency to align themselves with white male power. And so I think that's a political explanation of what, as you point out, has to be a partly psychological matter yeah. of internalizing the perspective of white men in ways that give rise both to empathy and also this tendency to vote with and be biased in favor of white men, even when they're completely undeserving of our allegiance.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Teaching women to defect, I think, is should be one of the political priorities. Teaching white women in particular to defect from their allegiance to white male power structures, you know, that that would do a lot of good in the world. To
0: pick up on that, this this teaching women to defect, and particularly white women, I mean, that would go back to our earlier conversation about how does one your role as a moral philosopher and giving them information for the, for the victims. Mm-hmm. And so part of the teaching to defect would be better education in these areas? I mean, is that where you kind of see part of your contribution?
1: Yeah, I hope so. I mean, yeah. in a way I wrote entitled... Um, hoping that it was the kind of book that could be read by high school students. You know, it's very simply written, it's marketed as a trade book, it really avoids any philosophical complications that I think would put off certain general readers. So the first book is much less accessible to the general reader. But I think part of that education is moral education, not telling people what they ought to do, but telling them what it's not the case that they have to do or ought to do. Telling them that they don't owe their loyalty to white men who don't deserve it in a way that does, unfortunately in this society, have to be taught and made explicit and can be partly a matter of emphasizing that there are other people who deserve our moral support and attention and consideration. White women, for example, should be much more oriented to the needs and political interests of black women, for example. And so part of it is reorienting people's natural sense of where their moral energies Uh, should go and challenging that by pointing out other people who have often been wronged, exploited, and neglected by, by white women.
0: Where do you think most people get their, this sense of values, um, I'm thinking where we as intellectuals, as academics can intervene. Mm-hmm. You wrote a trade book. I think it's a fabulous book. I know you got a little bit of, I don't know, maybe did, did you get a little bit of blowback from people in the field or people saying it's not theoretical enough or it's <laughs> too anecdotal on the one side. And then I wonder if how one makes the leap to the people who would not otherwise pick up a book such as entitled and have them pick it up and read it.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I haven't gotten that much blowback, I think, partly because I have a lot of privilege. You know, I'm privileged along every yeah. dimension by yeah. gender. And I often make a point of emphasizing this because I'm not writing from the perspective of someone who feels terribly oppressed. I'm really writing from the perspective of someone who feels like I have been... Lucky in undeserved ways that mean I'm in a position of privilege, that I rather spend the coin of my privilege doing things that I think would be harder if I wasn't in the position that I'm in, also in terms of institutional privilege. So I don't mm-hmm. hear a lot of that. I'm sure it's said behind my back. But, you know, I, I feel like people in my field have generally been very supportive of what I do in terms of more public facing work which i feel i feel very grateful for that support yeah. but in terms of like getting the message out there i mean it's partly a matter of um one person with certain concepts yeah. and they can speak to so many people who wouldn't necessarily pick up a book like this or a book on feminism at all to have you know a proliferation of certain ideas and certain Concepts. Yeah. An example that came up earlier think about what the concept of mansplaining has done to empower women to push back.
0: That's really true. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think that's helped not just on social media, but certainly on social media for people to get support and have other people recognize what they're up against when they are patronized and spoken down to and their expertise is assumed away. So the more you can make it, you know, pithy and something people can grab onto, the easier it is for these ideas to proliferate and to be shared widely in ways that I hope are valuable even if they do generate backlash.
0: Right. And that's why I think empathy is such a helpful coinage, um, because it does that. And it's very plastic. It's very concrete in creating the image of what it's about and what it's latching on to.
1: Yeah, thanks. I I often joke, I feel so sorry for my husband, who (laughs) perhaps doesn't get enough credit for the catchy, (laughs) catchy name for my concept. (laughs)
0: to get back to education because one of the really striking kind of facts that you marshal out in the book is that between one quarter and one third of sexual assault in the U.S. is committed by juvenile offenders um, mm-hmm. and that really kind of dropped my jaw um, because when yeah. we consider that this comprises basically kids in a five to six year range between 11 and 17, mm-hmm. we're talking about a tiny percentage of the population yep. being responsible for a pretty big part of sexual assault in the United States and to me This speaks to the degree to which a boy's education or his value system, that this is just kind of implanted from very early on, from the time a child hits the world, this sense of entitlement is there. So I'm wondering, you know, how we intervene at that early level, because it's not just talking to adults, it's it's kids where it's already... Exactly.
1: I found myself really disturbed by that too, because I think even throughout the Me Too movement, if you look at who taken down as people who were identified yeah. as highly problematic, it was mostly older men. You know, Harvey Weinstein in his sixties, yep. Kevin Spacey in his fifties, Roger Ailes in his eighties, um, Bill Cosby in his late seventies. I believe at the time, you had men who were basically approaching or past their use-by date in terms of capitalist exploitation. They're no longer terribly useful from the perspective of late stage capitalism. And it's a much harder sell to say that an innocent young, an innocent seeming young white boy who may be genuinely too young to blame for what he does, you know, if he's age 11, like, that's a very morally tricky thing to blame, you know, just a kid for. And nonetheless, he can do a huge amount of damage. And it is a very small number in terms of percentage of the population oh yeah in terms of you have a small range of years but it's also only a tiny minority of boys in that age range doing this damage but there you have perpetrators who are very very likely to reoffend do a huge amount of damage primarily to girls but also in some cases to boys, as well as one has to assume non-binary victims, although they're understudied. And, you know, it points to the fact that, yeah, early education, early intervention would be so important if we could somehow arrange for that to happen in ways that I don't think are realistic in this country. But nevertheless, for parents of boys, I think it's something important to be aware of. Yes, it's only a small percentage, but they also do a large percentage of the damage. And something which I think is worth thinking about is narratives that can help us grapple with this. Like reading Roxane Gay's powerful memoir, Hunger, Mm -hmm. really cracked me open in certain ways. She, you know, was uh, gang raped, I think think it was age 12, um, and by boys her own age. Yeah. And it, yeah, it did ca- yeah. a lifetime of, of damage, you know, a, a lifelong trauma yep. that she recounts so movingly. And part of, I think, what was traumatic was she had no real way of speaking about it because it's not exactly that there's no one to blame, but blame is at least much more complicated when you have these boys who are almost just enacting this cultural harm that they've imbibed and absorbed. Yeah as their birthright. So there's kind of tragedy to it. Yeah. We have to we have to wrestle with that as a society.
0: Because I do think it's really striking that Weinstein and the others were older men, as you said, kind of you could say past their prime and certainly past their capitalist use by date. Mm-hmm. And I wonder where kind of more radical proposals might fit within or not fit within your thinking and here I'm thinking, you know, Marx's critiques of capitalism or even Marx in the famous footnote in the German ideology where he says, you know, and of course the family will be abolished. You know, that's <laughs> um, just like a footnote. He doesn't even put it in the main body. Um, but this would also include a much bigger role of the state as far as paid domestic mm-hmm. labor, guaranteed childcare, free education, or on the other hand, the feminist calls for the abolition of the family or at least radically rethinking the nuclear family. I'm just wondering where those things that push mm. – really push against, as you yourself said, you know, the capitalism and the capitalist logic of using people up, where we might need to get a little bit deeper into these structures.
1: Yeah. I'm very sympathetic to proposals of that kind as part of the solution. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always sort of joke, I'm just not a solutions person. I am a diagnostician. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm useless on my own, but I'm hopefully helpful as part of a, you know, cultural medical team. Yeah. One thing I've been particularly interested lately as someone who doesn't feel like she has the solutions but hopes others do. I've been particularly interested in the wages for housework movement. So thinking about thinkers like Silvia Federici, who, you know, since the 70s has been making visible the invisible labor that, as she points out, we're not going to be able to tackle quote unquote, women's issues until we recognize that these forms of invisible labor that women do broadly, reproductive labor, including all of the material, emotional support, caregiving labor that goes into keeping a household going until we recognize that that is what's propping up the production of capitalist workers, we will be nowhere. And I I completely agree with that. Although I also think it's worth remarking that this isn't to say that, well, the solution then is to adopt Marxism and all shall be well, because we know that until we face misogyny, exactly all political movements have been plagued by the reproduction themselves of patriarchal structures. Yeah. So it's a delicate balance between having to recognize the politics of gender and then introducing, broadly speaking, I think socialist solutions are generally going to be essential to addressing some of those problems, but not at the same time kowtowing to the popular myth that just adopting broadly socialist political values is its not a panacea, because without a sharp gender critique, we'll just reproduce gendered politics within our left-wing movements. I mean, we've seen that time and time again.
0: So I was wondering, you know, as one kind of second to last question if there's any text that you're in conversation with when you were in writing entitled or Down Girl, you know, certainly the play in the movie, you know, Gaslight is a crucial Mm -hmm. touch point. When I write, there's often kind of silent interlocutors or silent inspirations or sometimes even silent opponents um, that you're kind of in discussing with while you're writing. (laughs) And I was wondering if there's any kind of text, intertext there that aren't explicit within the materials, but that are kind of important for your thinking about these issues.
1: Oh, yeah, man, that's such a good question, because there really is mm-hmm. the novel Disgrace by J.M. Katzea. Oh. I read it when I was 16, so when it first came out in 99, mm. I read it, you know, there was a lot of fanfare around it, it won the Booker Prize, it was on my parents' bookshelves, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature a few years later, Yeah, and... I was at the time enrolled at an all boys school where I was um, one of the first.
0: <laughs> yeah, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. <laughs> explain that to me. But
1: what? Yeah. <laughs> I I was um, one of the first three girls enrolled at that all wow, boys school. So this is my last two years of high school. I'd wanted to do mm-hmm. uh, in Australia, I'd wanted to do international baccalaureate yeah. and the yeah. only school that was close enough to where we lived um, in Melbourne was an all-boys school that was prepared to let in girls to do the IB program.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, it was kind of a nightmare, as as you might expect, and certainly it was what spurred my interest in these topics when I started to teach some, I guess, nearly 16 years later. Um, but it was reading that novel, Disgrace, which... It's such a misogynistic text. Mm -hmm. It features this admittedly unreliable but very much centered upon male narrator, David Lurie, who's a professor, um, 52, who has an affair with his student Melanie, age 20. And this is after he has, you know, he has a string of stalking a sex worker, having various other... Um, relationships with women that are incredibly exploitative and finally homing in on one of his students to sleep with. And he says there's this one scene that has haunted me for now over 20 years, well over 20 years, where he goes to Melanie's apartment and he talks about it being not quite rape, not that, but undesired to the core. And it's not quite rape because she kind of participates in the action. She she lifts her hips to help her undress him, but she doesn't want it. And I think it was a consciousness of how awful that was, together with not being able to articulate what was awful about it. Because the conversations around that novel at the time were much more about the racism yeah. of... a a later rape scene that occurs in it and there were all these conversations about race and i was preoccupied with those conversations about race but in the back of my mind there was something very um something that just didn't sit right to me in that text you know the way that he describes his sexual his much younger sexual partner as prey he talks about the jaws like the fox closing in on her neck um and, you know, it was so disgusting, really. Like, I reread it recently, and I was so morally disgusted. But knowing that at age 16, it absolutely froze me, but I did not have the language to complain. Yeah. So that's the text. That yeah, that's, that's the
0: text, yeah. Because <laughs> what's what's, inter- what's, cause what's interesting about that text is there is there is some awareness mm-hmm. there, and Louis somewhat aware. I mean, he articulates things, but it doesn't change a thing. You know? Oh, yeah.
1: It's, It's, I mean, it's so lucid about his own misogyny and exploitation of women. I mean, part of what makes it compelling is, yeah, his extraordinary lucidity about his morally disgusting, uh, you know, worldview, which is both racist and misogynistic. And Katseya, as a novelist, tells us exactly what he's going to do by making Lurie and communications are really an English professor who understands that um, he's going to give us certain images that will allow us to have a racist vision of the men who go on to rape his daughters who are black South Africans. He tells us exactly what he's going to do. And then he does it in this seductive way. But I think it was knowing that as a young female reader of this book, I didn't feel entitled to complain that, Even despite its self-consciousness, there was something about inviting us into this vision of the world and of women and of sex that was so gross. Yeah. The fact that I didn't feel entitled to say that, it's like lingered in the back of my throat for 20 plus years.
0: But that that does a great job in exemplifying the difference right at the beginning of our conversation between, you know, more information or a certain amount of enlightenment and changing male behavior, i.e. not changing it. Yeah. And so persuasion not being there because in some ways he has the lingo down. He has a certain awareness of what he's doing. Oh, yeah. And it's more about your reaction as a 16-year-old female reader of not being able to find that language. You know, that you know it's about, your work is about arming people, as you say, and empowering people, giving people the knowledge on the victim side or on the, you know, on on the the female side to understand what these structures are. It's not about changing the men. Ideally, it should also be that. But first of all, about kind of arming and empowering the women.
1: Yeah, and making women feel they're morally entitled to say no in a way that, you know, part of what was at issue in the story is that Melanie didn't feel entitled to say no, even though she never wanted what happened between them. And, and so, yeah, reading that novel was sort of, you know, it's just one of those things that lingers, you know, a bad literary taste, (laughs) not because it's a bad novel, it's a brilliant one, but I should have been able to say something about it that was unavailable to me. Not because, I mean, he talks about sexual harassment. There's a tribunal. It talks about his exploitation of women, but there wasn't a sense of moral right to say those things. In fact, he robs those moral claims of their power, makes them seem hollow, and renders them virtually inarticulable by a kind of ingenuous reader of that text. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, what's interesting is at the end of Entitled you say your work's not about hope mm-hmm. and hope you, you define as the belief in a better world. And you say, you just don't put much store in that. You don't put much store in hope, <laughs> Just right. kind of like, <laughs> not to say it was hopeless, but like hope is not the category. Yeah. Instead, in this, you appeal to fighting for a better world. And those are your words, fighting for a better world. In other words, it's not about belief or hope, but as you say, political commitment. So, you know, as a last question, I'd like to hear your thoughts concerning this age-old tension between theory and practice, the life of the mind and the life of action, what we talked about earlier in terms of empowering, arming people, especially as you underscore the necessity of political engagement. Um, And I think about this in general with respect to the university, but also the task of intellectuals. Um, So this kind of the fighting for the better world. Mm -hmm. I'd like to hear more about what you have in mind there.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a really good question because in part of what I'm doing there is the end of my first book was so bleak and that was right. pretty controversial. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think but I, this
0: one's not exactly cheery either, but, it felt okay.
1: terribly cheery, but I felt like I had to give a little more yeah. by way of genre appropriate nods in the direction of a future. Right. You know, the first book said I despair, I give up. I wish I could offer a more hopeful message, but I'm just going to give yeah. a postmortem. Because, you know, it did feel like a little death within me of of hope at the end of writing that first book, facing all the misogyny that I'd previously kind of turned a blind eye to. That was was tough. But, I mean, part of it isn't an intellectual difference. It's just a material difference that I was pregnant with my daughter, Sophie, while I was writing the second book Mm -hmm. for almost the whole time I was writing it. And fighting just felt like a moral necessity even though i i mean of course we've made tremendous progress in all sorts of ways i wouldn't be in the position i am in if we hadn't made amazingly quick feminist social progress in many ways yeah. but i also think there is so much ugly backlash that more vulnerable women bear the brunt of yeah. i'm i'm pessimistic about sort of linear clean social progress that results in a better world on balance i think it's going to be just so messy forever Yeah, Part of what the transition was, was just going from a place Mm -hmm. of being gutted by having to try to face the misogyny that, in a way, I, I feel like I was taught, as is almost any young woman, to not examine too closely the flattening, deadening effect of that after four years of work on that first book. And then for the second book, feeling like... You know, in a way, it's an obligation not to, not to dwell solely on that anymore. Yeah. When you're trying to raise a girl in such an unjust world, how do you, how do you navigate that? And part of my answer has been, well, you fight. Yeah. You get prepared to fight with, you know, your teeth yeah. and nails and claw your way out of situations that feel deeply unjust. Um, and that preparedness to fight was, it was really, yeah, just recording a kind of a new mm-hmm. sensation phenomenologically. One way of putting it is none of this is normative. Yeah. Each conclusion of the books were just where I ended up yeah. and sort of a self-report on where it had left me Yeah. for contingent reasons as well as intellectual ones.
0: Well, thanks a lot for the conversation, Kate. This has been really illuminating and a real pleasure talking to you.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for the great questions. And yeah, honored to chat with you.
0: Well, it's always great to have you. We've been talking with Kate Mann, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Cornell University. The Humanities Pod is a production of Cornell Society for the Humanities, introducing you to some of the new work, the current conversations, and the latest ideas of humanists at and around Cornell. The Pod is produced by Tyler Lurie Spicer. Our music is from the continuing story of Counterpoint by David Borden performed and recorded by Mother Mallet's Portable Masterpiece Company. Our thanks go to Cornell's College of Arts and Sciences and the Cayuga Nation, on whose land Cornell resides.